I just want to read one single verse uh, out of Job. We're actually going to jump around several verses in Job uh, for, for our time together. Um, but I'm going to launch from Job chapter 30, verse 20. It says this. Job says to the Lord, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we just uh, we pray that as we, as we open up your word in this season that we're in, you would open our hearts in a fresh and healing way. For those who are struggling in their faith and their spirituality, I pray that you would meet them deeply. For those who are having the time of their lives, I pray that you would sustain them when they hit a wall. Ultimately, God, we pray that we would see you in a more deeply and profound and sustaining way than ever before. We pray that out of today, we would trust a little bit less in our flesh and in our own human faculties and resources, and we would trust a little bit more in the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a few years after I moved here, I went to school. I was a part of a college ministry uh, that met in, uh, in Carpinteria, uh, where a, a bunch of college students converged to hear the Word of God and to sing and to get together and just just you know, be with Jesus, and it was, it was wild and crazy. I mean, uh, it's that like sliver of, st- that stage of life, that sliver of life where you can move anywhere, do anything, don't care about nothing, and just want to go hard, you know, and like uh, getting a bunch of those people in a room uh, and opening up the Bible was often wild and crazy, and I would see people just, just passionately uh, pursuing Jesus and uh, giving up everything, giving up you know their dreams and their dream jobs, and uh, moving to wild places and doing all sorts of stuff to pursue the Lord. And uh, on occasion, I would see something different. I remember a friend of mine who was one of those. He was just extremely passionate, and he devoured everything, and he soaked up the Bible, and he was a part of not just this college ministry, but like every ministry from. You know, from Ventura to Isla Vista, like every day he was a part of something. He used his gifts and his skills, even though he was in school, uh, for the kingdom of God. And he was reaching out and growing and part of thriving communities. And I remember one day he just disappeared. He just kind of fell off the, the face of the earth. And I discovered later that almost what seemed like overnight, it might have been a slow roll, but what seemed like an overnight occurrence just everything just stopped. Everything that he was, was uh, enjoying, everything that was going for him, everything that he was experiencing just immediately just came to a halt and he fell off the, the face of the earth, so to speak, at least spiritually speaking, uh, started doubting his faith, started doubting the church, his friends, even doubting his own spiritual experiences and, be, and, and began a long, arduous struggle with God in which to this day, uh, hasn't recovered from. And I looked at that and I was like, that's weird. You know, I, 
gosh, that, that's, that's awful. He must, not, he must not be passionate enough, you know. Maybe he should try harder. Just my initial thoughts in those years when stuff like that happened. But then it kept happening. He wasn't the only one. Another, another college student would do the same thing, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. The momentum would stop. And I moved out of the college ministry and started to become a part of this church uh, years ago. thought maybe it's a college thing. You know, this happens to college students. They're crazy. We're crazy in that, you know, stage of life. Uh, emotions all over the place. But, you know, once we mature and we hit a certain age, you know, everything kind of stabilizes. <laughs> and I started seeing it happen to older men and women. Asking questions like, you know, and these are some of them seasoned veterans of the faith coming into another season where they would ask, like, I don't feel like God's listening to me anymore. I don't feel his presence. I, I don't hear him speaking. I, I, he, I see that the Bible telling me, like, he's there. Everybody is, like, consoling me. But I don't, all of the things that I used to experience, they're gone. And it seems like this, the, the momentum in my spirituality comes to an abrupt halt almost out of nowhere. And he, he's, I began to hear questions like, why am I bored now? Why am I so distracted? Why is there now this loss of passion in my faith? That didn't used to be there. I used to have a thriving relationship with the Lord. Things were going great. And all of a sudden, it was like the air got sucked out of the room. Oh, really, the air got sucked out of my soul. Do you ever feel this way? Does this ever resonate with any of you? If so, you're not alone. It wasn't just that guy. It wasn't just a group of college students. And it wasn't even just adults in the room with me. One day, it happened to me. And if it's happening to you, I just want to start this morning by saying you're not alone. And I'm not even just talking about me or other people in the room or college students. I'm talking about Job. Listen to some of the things that Job says, and keep in mind, he's not a new believer here. Uh, God would describe him as a blameless man full of righteousness, a guy after God's own heart. Listen to some of the things that he's saying to God in the moment of trial in prayer. Job chapter 30, verse 20, we just read it. I cry to you for help, you don't answer me. Look at Job chapter 23, verse 3. Oh, that I knew where to find God. That I might even come, to, uh, uh, come even to his seat. I wish I knew where to find him. I don't know where he is. He won't answer me. Look at uh, Job, not John, sorry, uh, but Job chapter 23, verse 8 through 9. Behold, I go forward, but God is not there. And backwards, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when, uh, uh, when he is working, I do not behold him. Uh, he turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. Listen to this language Job is talking about. I don't see him. I don't feel him. I don't hear him. You ever... You ever have those moments in your life? These seasons could be triggered by all sorts of things. Like Job, it could come about because of trial. Like he lost his family, lost his property, lost his health, and it triggered an avalanche of spiritual trial. For some of us, it might be that. For some, it might just be like poking at heart issues. Like last week, we spoke about family Dynamics and going back in order to go forward. Maybe in doing that, it triggers this, this, this spiritual 
uh, halting of the momentum, or it could come for what seems like no reason at all. But the effect, even if the reason is unclear, the effect is absolutely clear. Some of us hit a wall in our spirituality that we can't even explain. Maybe you resonate with the kind of the typical trajectory that some of us have seen or even felt. I, I like to call it, the, I, I like to describe it in this way. You get converted and life is bliss. God, you get, just, just get this initial awareness of who God is and maybe it's the first time ever you've been exposed. Holy Spirit shines a light in your heart. You see things in the Bible you never saw before. You believe in him. He's real to you for the first time ever and everything is just Gorgeous, man. There's like nothing wrong. You just want to just charge hard. Everything smells like lavender oil and fresh baked churros out of an oven. Like just, you're just like more, just the Lord. And then, and then you move into this next stage of just devouring everything you can about God. You're learning, you're downloading, uh, maybe for some of you, downloading podcasts, going to different church services, you're a part of all of this stuff, you're reading books, you're talking with people, anything and everything you can, you can devour about God, you're just soaking it up, and then you start moving into another stage, you're doing a bunch of stuff, and you get super active. I want to I wanna, uh, be active in the kingdom of God and like further his kingdom, this is awesome. Some of you just maybe go on missions trips, others maybe you get involved in a church some of you might be might work at a nonprofit or work with the poor some of you maybe join a, a a home group and you're just doing stuff stuff and you're just in love with God and you're learning more and you're doing stuff and the next stage to you that makes sense seems like uh, an even more intense experience of God and yet some of you instead of that you hit this wall where everything just seems to stop dead and even some of those things, your awareness of God starts to dull. Learning things, just you open up the Bible and the words just seem to fall off the page. They don't really impact you like they initially did. You try to pray, but it feels like you're talking to a wall. You, do, you find yourself doing a bunch of things for God, but you don't feel like you're doing things with God. And to, tell, uh, to be honest, if you're honest, you're getting bitter and resentful, you feel like you're stretched thin and you're maybe even sensing burnout. You hear these phrases like from Jesus that uh, if you take his yoke on you, you'll find rest and his yoke is easy and his burden is light and you scoff at that wondering like my yoke isn't easy at all. This is, this is, this is hard and terrible and I feel like my soul is being sucked dry. We see this common journey happening in biblical characters all throughout the Bible. A similar type of journey. Might look different in the specifics and details, but we see it over and over. We see it in Job, we see it in Paul, we see it in Peter, we see it in Abraham, we see it in David, on and on and on. Starts off great. And you legitimately are in love with the Lord, but at some point in your Christian walk, you hit this wall and the love and the life and the joy just get sucked out and you don't even know why. Pete Scazzaro uh, of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which uh, we love here at this church, uh, describes it in this way. He, he says, for most of us, the wall 
appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. It comes perhaps through a divorce, a job loss, the death of a close friend or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God, etc. We question ourselves, God and the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is, what he is doing, where he is going, how he is getting us there, or when this will all be over. Anybody resonate with that? Now the wall, as we speak of it, is, I'm not referring to like everyday trials, you know, like I got a sliver in my finger today, I hit a wall, you know. It usually might be triggered by really big, hard seasons, more than just small details, uh, as it was pictured. But even then, it, the, the wall refers not to the external trials in life, although those may trigger it. The wall refers to the internal trials that happen as a result and what we see in Job. He went through some external trials, but it triggered an avalanche in him where uh, he uh, he, began to suffer in spirit and in soul. We We call this the wall, hitting a wall. Wall for me appeared through some crises uh, that affected me years ago. I shared with this uh, to you, you like five times, so I won't belabor the point uh, today. But some of those things, just a perfect storm, just brought me to my knees. And it wasn't just the things that I was struggling with. It was also, it became my internal world. I shared with you a couple times how I suff- uh, began entering into a season of depression and burnout. Uh, there was a, a, a loss of passion for things that I used to really love, like uh, serving and, and ministry, uh, things that I used to just, just stay up doing for hours, you know, like prayer and reading the Bible. I, I would open up the Bible and there would just be nothing. It would feel like there's nothing. It was like a, a burden. And it just felt like I was trying to force it. And I, I would pray, but it would feel like nobody was listening. There are also minor things as well, like I, I would be in worship, uh, I wouldn't feel what, what ancient writers used to call consolation, where God graciously gives you a sense of his presence through your five senses. You just sense that he's near. I just lost that. None of that happened. I hit a wall, and I was up here preaching and leading a church, Asking myself, is this normal? Why is this, like, shouldn't I be getting, like, more deep? Like, shouldn't I be feeling more of the presence of God? Like, I hate all of this right now, if I'm, I'm honest with myself. That's weird, and I begin to feel guilty and ashamed. I hit a wall. But something was happening behind the scenes. There always is. And we see it in Job. In Job chapter 38, verse 1 through 2, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I love this, who is this, Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who's speaking? 
without even knowing what they're talking about. But I just want to focus on those first three words, uh, then the Lord. In other words, God was present this entire time. He was actually present with Job in a deeper way than Job could have even realized. He was debating with the devil. If you read the first two chapters of Job, God is debating with the devil about how much he loves Job. Job had no idea. Kind of got a feel for Job a little bit. He didn't like have his own book to kind of like refer back to in his suffering. Like, oh, I lost everything. What does the book that I wrote say about this? You know, he doesn't have like his own book, but we do. Praise God. And we can learn certain things from it. For example, God was there actually closer than Job could have realized. Job just couldn't feel it, see it, hear it, or understand what was going on. Now, for some of us, as we're going through this wall, that's not always enough. We might intellectually or conceptually know, yeah, I know God is there. He's everywhere. But why is he doing this? Why doesn't he just show up? Like, God could do anything. For those of us encountering like a a spiritual drought, you might be asking yourselves, as I've asked so many times, like, God, you could show up right now. Like those epiphany, like those uh, uh, moments in the Bible where God, God gives a visible manifestation of himself, like a burning bush, or, you know, chariots of fire, or pillars of smoke. Like, he does that kind of thing. He could do that right now, right here. Here, here. He could choose to do that if he wanted, not just once. He could could make me live that way. Why doesn't he? I think there's, I want to give you three things. The two are not the point of the sermon, but we have to to talk about them. The third is really what I want to get at, but the first two are important. One is sometimes it's hidden sin. Sometimes it's not like God is this angry Scrooge and he's trying to punish us for the way that we live. It's rather, if you think of it this way, God God is waiting to pour himself out on you. He's pouring himself out on his people. And sometimes we in our sin, our self-love are like, no thanks, right? Uh, As C.S. Lewis once once said, uh, he said something really profound, but I forgot what it was. Oh, God's wrath, when you boil it down to its basic properties, is him saying to people, your will be done. And when we sin, we are choosing something else other than God. So it could be hidden sin. Uh, The way around that, right, is self-awareness that leads to repentance. We spoke about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, knowing ourselves that we might know God, finding those blind spots so that we can turn away and turn towards God. So it could be hidden sin. It could also just be noise and busyness. I don't know if any of you have noise or busyness in your lives. Uh, No reason for that, Santa Barbara, you know. Uh, But we probably have a lot of that. It could be just that. He's, He's actually speaking to you. And you're crowding him out. And you can't hear him. Because you're, you, you've, you've filled your mind with so much other stuff. You've filled your schedule. There's no margin. Uh, we're going to be talking about that in depth during the series. Next week, we'll talk about the gift of limits and margin. Uh, in the last remaining weeks, we'll talk about things like Sabbath and daily office, ways of carving out space uh, outside of busyness to hear from God. So it could be t- two of those things, but I'm not talking about those two. I'm addressing the person who is seeking first the kingdom of God They've got margin in their life. 
you know, all of us have sin, but for the most part, we're doing, you know, as much as we know, we are, you know, we are pursuing the Lord with all of our heart, but it doesn't seem to be working. And for that person, for that Job, for that you, if that's you, what the scriptures seem to, to show is that the wall, why doesn't God just show up the way that we want him to? is because the wall is actually a divine maturing process for God's people. God is actually, through the journey through the wall, inviting you to go deeper with him through a dark season. It's just not the way that you would have chosen to do it. Uh, there's a chap- uh, chapter in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. I won't read it, but uh, it's that section where John uh, the, the apostle of G, one of the, Jesus' apostles is writing to this church and he's, he's saying, dear fathers, you know, you have, you have done this and uh, young men, uh, you, you remaining strong, you have uh, withstood the evil one and then he turns to the children, to the children, to the young men and to the fathers and he does that repeatedly and uh, it, it looks, it, it's almost as if John, John is speaking to different demographics in a church. Like I'm talking to the dads and uh, older fathers, now I'm talking to the young men, now I'm talking to the kids. Uh, but a lot of people actually believe that he's not speaking to a bunch of different people, but one person. And he's speaking to the spiritual maturity of that person. That we start as children and then we move into uh, young men or young women of the faith, and then we eventually become fathers or mothers of the faith. It, it, uh, many people think that what John is speaking about is the spiritual journey of a person. In other words, it's not like we get converted to Christ and bam, everything is the way that it's supposed to be, and we just kind of coast along doing our thing in Santa Barbara until Jesus you know, picks us up and puts us in the corner in heaven somewhere. It's, it's a journey. We saw that vividly in the book of Philippians. You, every, every ounce of your life here until Jesus comes again will be spent being conformed into Christ's likeness. That means you have not arrived yet. There's still more to do. And God is continually taking us through seasons of maturity and growth. And some of us stop pursuing growth. We reach a place where we get comfortable or it's good enough for us. And we're like, I'm tapping out. This is cool. I've reached. It's like spiritual retirement, you know? I've still got like 20 years left. I want to spend it on some other things. I'm good, Lord. I'll see you when you come again. Bam! We say, we might reason to ourselves, you know, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't uh, commit adultery. I haven't burned anyone's house down or murdered anybody. I'm fairly good. But there's always an element to the false self that God, in his love, is desiring to, to strip away so that you can be conformed in knowledge after the image of, the, of your creator, as Paul said in Colossians. All these ancient writers throughout church history, reading stuff like John and Job and Paul, would begin to apply this not only to their own journey, but to people they were mentoring, and they started to see this, this wall popping up. Not only in the scriptures, but also in their own lives and in people they were mentoring. And it just kept coming up in Christians' lives over and over, almost without fail. They coined a term to describe it. They called it the dark night of the soul. It was actually a Spanish theologian by the name of John of the Cross uh, who first coined this term and wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. 
It's not about having a bad day or being sad. It's about those seasons where God feels absent and your faith doesn't seem to work anymore. He also described, uh, he coined another term we might be familiar with uh, called the seven deadly sins. Uh, things like wrath and avarice and you know, greed and pride. And we might have the inclination of thinking of those things as like it's people that don't love God, that's what they do. John of the Cross actually wrote the seven deadly sins about himself and about other believers as he was searching the scriptures. In other words, uh, as he was looking at the, uh, searching the scriptures, applying it to his own life and to people who he was mentoring, he discovered, no, even though I get converted, you know, when I, before conversion, I had wrath, I had greed, I had pride, I had all of these things. And, and those were focused on, you know, typical worldly things. I chased after money, I chased after uh, sex, I chased after power, I chased after all of these things. Then I got converted. Those things didn't go away. I just refocused them on my spirituality. And you describe his journey and saying, uh, I still have pride. I just inject that pride into my prayer life now. Uh, I still have greed. I just, instead of being greedy for money, I'm greedy for uh, 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 spiritual feelings and, and things of that nature. Think of, think of it in this way. Maybe you've had this experience. Uh, I've done this from time to time. Open up the Bible and it's, you know, quiet time. Open up the Bible. I read like the perfect psalm and it's like the sunlight is spilling through my window at just the right angle, just kind of hitting me right in the forehead and I'm like, oh! And the verse I'm reading is like everything that I'm going through and I'm like, oh, God is speaking to me right now. Oh my gosh! And I get like a feeling on the back of my neck and I just feel all the feels and from that, I go into my day like God has met me. He has spoken to me. He's real. I'm going to take you know, and I, I approach my day with courage and I'm more full of love. I'm more patient with people because God met me in a special way. And then the next day I, I, I sit in my chair uh, and as I open up the Bible, two kids jump in my lap and start punching me and, you know, the, it's, it's overcast and I open up my Bible and it flips open to Lamentations and I'm like, this doesn't speak to me at all. I don't want to be sad. And it just, it just doesn't hit me. I don't feel anything. I don't sense anything. And what do I often do when that happens? I, I make a judgment call on, on God. Oh, you haven't met me like you did yesterday. I'm judging my experience with God based on what I'm feeling. And I might even go into that day a little grouchy and a little irritable and a little short-tempered. Isn't that interesting how quickly I judge God based on my experience of God. And John of the Cross would write and say, what you're doing in that moment is you're bringing all of your sin into your spiritual life. And God is so kind. He would write this in his journaling. He'd be like, God is so kind. When you first get converted, you don't know anything better. And so God meets you right where you're at. He says, open up the Bible. I'm going to meet you. It's going to be awesome. I'll pray. I'll show you things. But there comes a moment where God wants to peel us away from dependence on our flesh in what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, dark as in mysterious or unknown. Uh, I just want to read this, uh, check out this quote from him in his, uh, in his writings. He says, God leaves them so completely in the dark that they know not with their sensible imagination and meditation for they cannot advance a step in meditation and prayer. 
their inward senses are so submerged in this night and left with such dryness that not only do they experience no pleasure or consolation, feeling good, in the spiritual things and good exercises wherein they were wont to find their delights and pleasures, but instead, on the contrary, they find insipidity and bitterness in the said things. Sorry, John, excuse my buddy John from the 1600s. He's basically, you know, he's basically saying, hey, there comes this moment where you hit a wall and the things that used to be so exciting and pleasurable, all of a sudden they feel so dry and it feels so hard and you might even feel guilty like things aren't working or like you failed or maybe God's failed you. He goes on, for as I have said, God now sees that they have grown a little and are becoming strong enough to lay aside their swaddling clothes So he takes them down from his arms and teaches them to walk on their own feet, which they feel to be very strange for everything seems to be going wrong with them. Isn't that beautiful? A dark night, if you look through all of these characters in the scriptures, if you just look at Job, it turns out that dark night, that wall, is really an act of God's kindness to bring those people closer to God's love uh, beyond what their flesh can manufacture for themselves. If this is true, we could expect every Christian to go through one of these, maybe even more than once. What happens when you, you hit a wall in your spirituality and it's not hidden sin, it's not noise and busyness, but you just can't make sense of it. You know, many of us, when we encounter the wall, we have trained ourselves to utter platitudes, spiritual platitudes, <clears throat> uh, pithy spiritual quotes about how it's going to be okay, how this isn't really, you know, it's not as bad as it seems, or we attempt to flee the pain. This is something we've been talking about through our series on emotional and spiritual health. We suppress what we're actually feeling. We don't see that in Job or Paul, or Jesus, for that matter, or any of these biblical characters. They're, they're honest. We sometimes suppress emotions and pretend like it's not happening, maybe out of guilt or shame. Some of us, as I shared at the beginning, we just give up. We think this isn't really for me. It's not working. I'm doing something else. And looking back in retrospect at some of my friends, even myself, I, I, I'm so torn inside because now I realized that God was actually about to take them into a deep level of his love for them. And they thought he was mad. How did Job handle the wall? He didn't pretend like it wasn't there and he didn't run away. He was honest with his emotions as we've been discussing And I don't mean honest in a dry, formulaic way, you know, like, today I was quite melancholy. Job 3, verse 3 through 4, let the day perish on which I was born. I wish I was never born. Job chapter 7, verse 11, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I'll complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job chapter 10, verse 1 through 2. I loathe my life. Really? What if I said that? What if I said that to you? I hate my life. I think that would probably make you uncomfortable. (laughs) 
But I've said that before. And some of you have too. And Job is telling us, this is actually a good response. Now notice, he doesn't in his emotion steamroll people or speak falsely against God. In fact, he does all of this without sinning. Three times the book of Job says that in all Job did and said, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. In fact, at the end of Job, God himself says uh, to his silly, emotionally immature friends, uh, he, he says to them, you have not spoken right about me like my servant Job has. Really? This is revolutionary for some of us. I hate my life. God, where are you? I wish you never let me be born. God has spoken rightly, or Job has has not spoken wrongly about me. I think there's this honesty in his emotions that God is refreshed by. But he's not just honest with his emotions. In his raw, unpleasant emotions, he is clinging all the harder to the God that he can't see or feel. He felt him before, he, you know, he heard about him with the hearing of the ear, uh, now it's gone, but he is clinging harder than ever before. Listen to some of these passages, uh, in, uh, actually if you're there, just turn to Job chapter 13 verse 15, Job chapter 13 verse 15, listen to what Job says right here. As he's speaking, he's defending himself, talking about God and where is he and all of these things are happening to me and his friends are just the worst friends in the world. If you have friends like this, maybe make them read this, this book <laughs> and get, make sure they get to the part where God like just slaps them, you know, slaps all the friends, just all the friends, just bam, let God slap your friends for you. That's the point of that mini sermon. But anyway. Verse 15, Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. (laughs) Listen to that. Even if he ends up killing me, and perhaps Job felt like he was being killed in that moment, I I will go to my grave hoping in God. And yet I love how he throws in this, yet I will argue my ways to his face. (laughs) I'm going to cling to God, but I'm going to argue on my way down. Love that. Turn to Job chapter 19. This is wonderful. This whole chapter, he's just like, oh, I've been stripped of my glory. I've been broken down on all sides. My brothers are far from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends forgot me. I'm a stranger in my own house. You know, his wife is mocking him. Uh, Even my young children despise me. Verse 18, look look at uh, verse 25. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see my God. And I will see him for myself. And my eyes will behold him, not the eyes of another. I love that. Even if my body fails because of this misery, I will see my God. He is real. I trust in him. He's going to be there. I'm going to see him. And the best part is, I'm not going to see him through someone else's eyes. It's going to be mine. I'm not going to live off the spirituality of another person. This is my God. We see this, you know, we, we see this in Psalm 77. I won't read the whole thing, but... Uh, The psalmist there is just wrestling with God. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. 
in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. And then down as he's, he's also like Joe pouring out his emotions about how he's struggling. He doesn't know what's going on. He can't, put a, he can't uh, explain it. He speaks to himself, I think in verse six, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart so that my spirit can make a diligent search. And then he tells his spirit to remember who God is and all that he has done. Maybe in the night of my misery, my spirit will begin to search on its own. I love this, this poetry of these, these men and women who are like, I don't know what's going on, but this I know. My life is terrible right now, but God is good, and all I know to do right now is cling to him, and even though I don't feel him, he will break through on the other side. I don't know if it's going to be a month. I don't know if it's going to be a year, but we see this in that passage we just read. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he will eventually answer you too. But he will first bring you through a wall. John of the Cross, again, writes, it is well for those who find themselves in this condition to take comfort, to persevere in patience and be in no wise afflicted. Let them trust in God who abandons not those that seek him with a simple and right heart and will not fail to give them what is needed for the road until he brings them into the clear and pure light of love, although it may seem clear to them now that they are doing nothing and are wasting their time. John of the Cross, reading Job and reading Paul and reading the psalmist and applying this to his own life, telling younger people like us in retrospect, you know, he's like 200 years old right now or whatever, so we're all young in his light. He's telling us, Hey, even though it seems like you're opening up at the Bible, spending time with God, and it seems like the light is turned off, you stay in that corner. You stay and you trust. And there will be eventually a light that breaks through. You can't explain it, you don't know why, but he will break through. In other words, receive the wall, brothers and sisters. Receive the dark night of the soul. You don't have to like it. You can scream at God. He's not afraid of your screams. He's not ashamed and he's not surprised. You can crawl into his lap and say, this, this is terrible. But receive God and keep patiently pressing into what you know about him that's true. And you know at least this, right? That God loves you. He loves you, and even if you don't feel him in this moment, he loves you and he's with you, and he proved that love and his presence for you when Jesus himself, the God of the universe, in human flesh, pushed his own way through his own dark night of the soul. He pushed his way through his own wall in the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled with what was coming before him and he even prayed to God saying, uh, if, if there's any other way for this, take this cup from me, but... And then he still clings, right? Not my will, but yours be done. Even on the, on, the, on the cross, as he was taking his last breaths, he struggled in a dark night of the soul, saying, my father, my, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God didn't forsake him. God is still there. And yet, gosh, doesn't it feel like that sometimes? And Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus went forward through that wall to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He looked at the shame that was coming his way. He despised it. The scorn flipped it aside and he pressed through that wall in obedience to the Father and for the joy of the people that he loves so much. 
in that initial season when I got through the wall, a funny thing happened. You know, I, things that I never planned on. Things that I couldn't have done myself. I, I discovered that I was a little less attached to other people's opinions of me. I was a little less attached to my own success or appearance of success. Attachments and addictions that I used to have, they were a little weaker. And I was like, this is strange. As I went through the wall, I I experienced a deeper sense of God's love. I started opening up the Bible and it was like fresh. It was like I... I, had been, I had, was reading it for the first time. I began to pray, and instead of praying like I, I was before, praying for things to happen, praying to change things, I was praying to commune with God. I began serving and preaching and doing all of this stuff, and there was this renewed vigor in me. But not to show off, and not to, to try to achieve something, but because I was experiencing what I thought was just a deep part of the pool with my Lord Jesus. I made it through the wall. I hope I never go through another one again. But I might. And you might too. You might be in one right now. God's word for you today is, God loves you even when you don't feel it. And he is taking you to a deeper place than you ever realized. Hang on on to Jesus. Even if all you have to hang on to is an old scripture passage and a prayer of silence. It took for that deep work in my life, it took a place, some time in, the, in a dark valley. You know, Jesus might take you through a valley too. But he'll never take you through a dark valley without a coinciding promise though you go through the valley of the shadow of death. You'll fear no evil, for I am with you. Heavenly Father, as we sing uh, together and come before you in your presence, um, some of us may feel like we're in that state right now. And it feels so mysterious and confusing, maybe. And I just pray that those men and women right now would just feel in some tangible way, just know in the deepest part of who they are that you've got them in the palms of your hand. For those of us that have not hit a wall, we're, we're doing really wonderfully pray that you would just begin to teach us that you're more than our feelings, even though our feelings are good. And I pray that you would give us glimpses of who you really are. You would prepare our hearts and our souls to be with you. For those of us that need comfort, I pray that you would give it. For those of us that need peace, I pray that you would supply it. For those of us that just need a little reminder to push through the wall, I pray that you would show them the grace that you have lavished on us that truly the only thing that we can bring to the table is our own hunger. Sometimes it's all we we truly can bring to you, God, is our own hunger and thirst, and yet, Jesus, you said, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so I just pray for this church, everyone in here from left to right, from bottom to top, that you would satisfy our hunger today as we seek you and press into you. In Jesus' name, amen.